0: Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada, and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. And here we are. We're in December. Holy moly. This year has gone quickly because I guess it's been such a fun year, don't you think? (laughs) Right. Anyway, what we're going to be doing today and for the next several shows is I'm going to give you the history of Palestine. And it's going to be kind of from the Palestinian perspective. Next week, I'm going to give you the history of Israel. Israel, from the Israeli perspective. And in the final week, I'm going to tell you how international powers, going back to the oh 1800s, 1700s, and including the United States, and the European countries, and Russia, have all interfered in the mess, which is the Middle East, which you're seeing play out before your eyes every few number of years, and with, should we say, increasing ferocity, here starting just a month ago with October 7th and Hamas attack on Israel. There really is, as you get into this history, a repeating pattern that goes back thousands of years, and it's fascinating. And when I'm done with the Palestinian history in this show, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, because there's some eye-opening tidbits that you don't know about that boiling point that we call the Middle East over there, and who is behind the original start of the simmer, which is now a boil. And then I'm starting the series on your personal financial preparedness. Because let's face it, financial security for you, your family, and if you're secure for your country, which is why I'm bringing you this series, is tantamount. It's critically important to both the success, survival, and comfort, or at least relative comfort, depending upon how things go, <laughs> whether they go really badly or just kind of really poorly, is key. Personal family country. And as we all know, the dollar is in trouble. The finances of the United States and the entire Western world, and by the way, a good portion of the third world, if you want to call it that, the BRICS countries, is in trouble. Math is math. You can't escape it. And the sheer math, the simple math of United States and Western world debt, private debt, corporate debt, and you'll notice a theme throughout all this. And the theme is, what is scarce has value. What is real, what is hard, what is tangible, has value. And while there is no guarantee that value is likely to be retained, in fact, while there is no guarantee that value is likely to increase, at least in relative terms. As you'll find out today, an ounce of gold, let's say, or an ounce of silver, which is much more volatile, really buys the same goods and services today that it bought 100 years ago. It's all relative. It is not that any of these hard and real assets... Whether it's metals or those who believe in it, or whether it's crypto currency, particularly Bitcoin, or whether it's land or whether it's certain types of residential real estate, all of which is very locational in terms of its intrinsic long-term value, or the stores of value in other physical assets, which will be the wrap-up of this series over the next four or five weeks. It's all relative. But that relativity is what you're trying to protect against or you're trying to enhance when it comes to personal financial preparedness. And then, of course, we're going to have rat a tat And <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's all sorts of things coming out on the COVID scam and the COVID jab scam, which will just make your hair stand on end. I'm going to touch briefly on them. We're going to have a whole bunch of new videos, studies, articles on the COVID page. Some of them will be under rat tat others under family safety, but all of them will be on the COVID page. That is the, I think, one of the best compendiums of COVID information of all sorts and types and from all sorts of different sources on the web. Homepage on the right side radio.com, upper right, click on the COVID page and you'll see it. By the way, the financial preparedness series that we're bringing you, we're going to have a separate page for that also. I mean, yes, you'll see some of the articles and stuff under rat a tat and under family safety, but There will be a link added this week on financial preparedness, physical and financial preparedness. You can click on that link. It'll bring you to all the things that we're discussing over the next coming weeks and some of the things in terms of physical preparedness and sources for physical preparedness that we've discussed in previous shows over really the last three or four years particularly. So let's start with our founder's quote, shall we? This is Alexander Hamilton. Give all the power to the many they will oppress the few give all the power to the few they will oppress the many isn't that a fitting thing for this day and age eh? and our ranch story this week well you know we have cows coming in uh, over the course of this week in fact uh, when you're listening to this they will be fat and happy and delightedly munching the delicious remnants of the summer and fall grasses here on the ranch and the first batch came in yesterday And we had a complete plan. We had the loading chute, which is portable, attaches to the back of the semi truck, hauling the cows, out in the front field so the semi didn't have to drive in too far. We had an area that we need eaten off so we can take the rocks out of it and increase hay production. We call it the corral pasture. All set to go. Fences redone. New gates on it. And we had planned to bring them in yesterday morning. And, you know, right on time, the semi shows up in a stock trailer with the five cows going into the corral pasture to do their lawn mowing job so we can clear it of rocks for next summer's hay season. And the chute got attached to the back of the semi. The cows got unloaded in a matter of minutes. The stock trailer brought its five cows down. I opened the gate. It backed in. The cows ambled out, rather delightedly, seeing all the grass they had to munch on. And then the stock trailer pulled out. I closed the gate. And we were done 45 minutes all the cows in and the moral of the story is that you always want to have a plan it kind of ties in with the whole scope of this show the mid-east part of the show the financial preparedness part of the show and even the day-to-day things in life or on the ranch and the plan went like clockwork a hot knife through butter and as we all know there are plans that you put in place that don't go so well so the moral of the story is have a plan And when the plan goes well, delight in it. And when the plan doesn't go well, well, deal with it. Adopt, improvise, and overcome. Fortunately, not an adage we had to employ yesterday. Let's talk about the history of Palestine and the Palestinians, kind of from their perspective. And I want to emphasize that I'm not taking the Palestinian side. In fact, Although I obviously lean heavily toward the Israeli side. I'm not taking the Israeli side. My job is to bring you facts that you don't know, to tie this whole messy ball of wax over there in the Mideast into a at least understandable package. And that cannot be done, as with most things, without knowing the history, because it's fascinating. And you'll understand why we are here, where we are now. First of all, the word Palestine, it comes from the ancient Greek, Philistia. And as you might know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all very strongly tied to this region and trace origins to the, ver- to the land in this region, right? Land, under all lies the land, folks. Always under all lies the land. And the land has been the source of disputes. Who controls it? Who gets to use it? Who owns it? From back to the beginnings of time, this is an area that has seen numerous empires, dynasties, and rulers the ancient Hebrews and the Judaic tribes, Persia, now what we know as Iran, the Philistines, which is where the name kind of originates from, the Romans, and other assorted and sundry groups. And in more recent times, from about the 1700s up to World War I, the Turks, which was known as the Ottoman Empire. Following the 1918 fall after World War I of the Ottoman Empire, Palestine typically referred to the region between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Much of that land is present-day Israel, and therein, to the Palestinians and the Arab world, lies the rub. The region that is now known as the Palestinian Territories includes the West Bank, which is a territory that kind of sits between modern-day Israel and Jordan, previously, prior to World War I, Transjordan, and the Gaza Strip, which of course you've heard about in the news. And that borders Israel and Egypt. These areas have all been under military, Israeli military occupation since 1967, according to the Palestinians. There's zero, none, no international consensus which concerns the borders of all these little bits and pieces and parts. You might be interested to know that there are 28 United Nations member countries who still, and currently, do not recognize the existence of Israel, its borders, or its nation-state. And that includes, by the way, the areas claimed by the Palestinian territories, which are also claimed by Israel. There's 135 United Nations member countries that do recognize Palestine as an independent state. But there's a number that do not, including, big surprise, Israel and the United States. We could talk for days, weeks, months over the ancient history of this area. It is the home of Muhammad, the original prophet of Israel the Islamic religion. It is the birthplace and home of Christ, whose existence underpines all Christianity. It is where Moses got the Ten Commandments in a tablet from God on top of Mount Sinai. And whenever you mix religion into a geopolitical and economic equation and a dispute over land, it becomes accelerated, accentuated, and highly emotional. And as we all know in our personal life experiences, when things get emotional, things can get out of control. And this is an area that has seen emotions run high for many thousands of years, centuries before the birth of Christ. And of course, with the advent of the modern world with weapons and communications and linkages in the Internet, emotions can flow and explode and be transmitted to create emotions in others in the blink of an eye through the Internet. We're going to focus a little bit on the 1900 to 1948 period when Israel became a nation state, and we're going to focus heavily, or as heavily as we can in our limited time, on that time period of 1948 to now. So in the last years of the 19th century, in the early years of the 20th, the Palestinian Arabs shared kind of a general Arab renaissance. Palestinians found opportunities in serving the Ottoman Empire, and Palestinian deputies sat in Ottoman parliaments of 1877, 1908, 1912, and 1914, Arabic newspapers flourished. And it was during that time that Arab nationalism and Palestinian nationalism, which had not really existed prior to them, and in opposition to what they call Zionism, which is the settlement and expansion of Jewish control, economics, and lands in the Palestinian region, and the newspapers back then are already talking about opposition to Zionism. The Arabs sought an end to Jewish immigration and to land purchases by the Zionists. But the number of Zionist colonies, and wait till we get to the rest of the story about who financed this, rose from 19 in the year 1900 to 47 in 1918. In 1914, the population of Palestine, mostly agricultural, was 690,000. 535,000 Muslims, 70,000 Christians, most of whom were Arabs, and 85,000 Jews. And during World War I, the great powers, quote-unquote, pretty much made a number of decisions about the Middle East, not just the Palestinian area, without, well, with very little regard to the wishes of the inhabitants of that area, which of course sowed the seeds for what we have going now. The Palestinian Arabs always believed, and still believed, that Great Britain had promised them independence in what's called the McMahon Correspondence, which is an exchange of letters from July 1915 to March 1916, and that that commitment was made to the Arabs in return for their support against the Ottomans during the war. But all those promises were forgotten. Gee, big surprise. Because in May 1916, Great Britain, France, and Russia reached an agreement. It was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement according to which, Palestine was to be internationalized. Well, of course, those major powers had to have their hands in the economic till and in the resource pot. And in November 1917, a British Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Arthur Balfour, remember that name, he addressed a letter to Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild. Oh, that's a name we're going to be discussing, which was called later the Balfour Declaration. And basically, the Balfour Declaration expressed sympathy for the establishment of Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people. So kindling was added to the fire of thousands of years. And the declaration said, and I quote, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, unquote. And by the way, many historians think that the Balfour Declaration really had very little to do with empathy for the Arabs, for the Palestinians. But it was really a psyops deal meant to prompt American Jews to start exercising their influence in moving the United States to support, number one, British post-war policies, and number two, to spur Jewish immigration to this area, and as a distant third, to encourage Russian Jews to keep their nation fighting against the German Axis at that time. Palestine was hard hit by World War I, destruction from the fighting, famine, epidemics, and punitive measures by the Ottoman Empire against Arab Nationalists. There were major battles throughout the region, including, by the way, at Gaza. Oh, and here we are again. Boy, you know, history does repeat, and it certainly rhymes. Jerusalem was finally captured by British Field Marshal Edmund Allenby in December 1917, and the remaining area of Palestine was occupied by the British. In fact, completely almost 280,000 troops by October 1918. Now, we could go into all sorts of details and people that were bubbling at this time. We don't have the time to do that. So let me just say that in 1920, there were anti-Zionist riots because Jewish immigration was steadily increasing into the area. And despite the hue and cry of the Arabs, and they've never forgotten it, and despite the unrest, Sir Herbert Samuel, who, by the way, was a Zionist, was appointed by the British as the first high commissioner of the territory. And he immediately began to implement the Balfour Declaration, announcing in August of the year a quota of 16,500 Jewish immigrants. That was the first year that, should we say, Jewish immigration, it wasn't mandated, but it was fully acknowledged and allowed. More than 18,000 Jewish immigrants came between 1919 and 1921, and the Jewish National Fund, which had been established, gee, you don't think these plans are long-term, in 1901 began purchasing land in the area. And when they purchased land, they evicted the Arab peasants, according to the Arabs, who were called Felahin, or Felahin, which, of course, pissed off the Arab opposition and population even more. 1921, more Really serious anti-Zionist riots broke out in Jaffa, and Jewish communities were attacked. More than 100 Jews were killed. The British, really alarmed at what was going on, issued a white paper in June of 2022, trying to, uh, you know, thread the needle, if you will. And that white paper said, quote, Great Britain did not contemplate that Palestine as a whole should be converted into a Jewish national home, that such a home should be founded in Palestine. Unquote. In July 1922, the Council of the League of Nations, that ineffectual body of Woodrow Wilsons, approved a mandate instrument for Palestine, which, by the way, included in its preamble the incorporation of the Balfour Declaration and stressing the Jewish historical connection with Palestine. This resentment, this animosity, this killing, this violence accelerated. I'm going to skip forward here to 1948, And along the way, leading up to 1948, the Arab faction splintered into quote-unquote moderate and quote-unquote more radical groups. Actually, all the groups were radical. The underlying premise was that all Jews should be killed. No Jewish settlements or immigration or land purchases should be allowed. And of course, on the Jewish side, it was exactly the opposite. And the Jewish communities split into moderate and radical Jewish communities. The radical Jewish community saying all Arabs should be moved out of Palestine, all land should be Israel's, they should have complete control, and whatever was necessary to get that done, including violence, which the Jewish radicals resorted to, should be undertaken. While the moderates said, you know, there should be some type of relatively peaceful cohabitation with the Arabs, even though the Jews should control everything that happened within the Palestinian territories. In 1947, after two decades of British rule, the United Nations, (laughs) the not-so-great successor to the League of Nations, proposed a plan to partition Palestine into two sections, an independent Jewish state and an independent Arab state. Aha, the two-state solution. See, it's not a new idea, is it? The city of Jerusalem, which was claimed as a capital by both Jews and Arabs, was to be international territory with special status. Most Jewish leaders accepted the plan, but most Palestinian Arabs vehemently opposed it. Nonetheless, in May of 1948, less than a year after this partition plan, Britain withdrew from Palestine, and Israel declared itself an independent state. It implied a willingness to implement the United Nations partition plan, but took no real steps to do so. And almost immediately, neighboring Arab armies moved in to prevent the establishment of that Israeli state. The 1948 Arab-Israeli War involved Israel and five Arab nations, Transjordan, now Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon. By the war's end in July of 1949, Israel wound up with control of more than two-thirds of the former British mandate. Jordan took control of the West Bank, and Egypt took control of the Gaza Strip. And understand that in 1948, this conflict took on a whole new dimension. It now became a conflict between nation-states rather than factions within a region. In 1964, the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, you've heard of it, was formed for the purposes of establishing an Arab state on the land that was previously administered by the British Mandate and which the PLO considered to be, shall we say, illegally occupied by the state of Israel. PLO at that time... And most Arab factions right now are dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel. It wasn't until the 1993 Oslo Accords that the PLO accepted Israel's right to exist in exchange for formal recognition of the PLO by Israel. That, folks, marks the high-water mark. Everything's been downhill since then in Israeli-Palestinian relations. And in 1969, you've heard the guy's name, Yasser Arafat, became the chairman of the PLO. And he held that title, by the way, until his death in 2004, along with some other titles which we'll talk about. I'm going to talk about, in much more detail, in the Israeli history, if you will, the Six-Day War in 1967, the First Intifada in 1987, the agreement known as Oslo II in 1995, which kind of laid the groundwork for a complete withdrawal of Israeli troops, supposedly, from parts of the West Bank and other areas and set a schedule for Palestinian Legislative Council elections. The second intifada, which was in September 2000. But we are going to talk a little bit about Hamas, because it's kind of fascinating how Hamas originated, how it perpetuates, why it perpetuates, and who's behind it. Wait till we get to the rest of the story. Hamas is an acronym for the Islamic Resistance Movement. It's a Sunni Islamist militant group. And to achieve its ends, Hamas really doesn't care who it fights or who it kills. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, and later on the Palestinian Authority, whom Yasser Arafat was elected as president, had a military wing called the Fatah, F-A-T-A-H. And through the early 2000s, Hamas and Fatah had open war in Gaza, the West Bank, and other of the certain occupied territories outside of that, in other Palestinian areas. In 2006, Hamas defeated Fatah in a huge battle in Gaza. And the most of the terror attacks that have occurred within Israel and around the world, I might add, have been perpetrated by Hamas. Suicide bombings, plane destruction, deadly raids on military and civilian targets both within Israel, within the Palestinian territories, and around the world. And they have never, to this day, stopped for their calls for the complete destruction of Israel and the killing of all Jews in Palestine. Hamas and Israel have fought each other in a number of really bloody, really nasty conflicts. 2008, 2012, 2014, 2018, and of course, uh, the mess we have going now. Supposedly, in April 2014, Hamas and Fatah agreed to a deal that would form a unified national Palestinian government and kind of military arm. But the power struggles have never been resolved between those two major parties, and it dissolved in 2019. That left, by the way, Fatah, the more quote-unquote moderate of the groups, dominant in the West Bank, and Hamas in full control of the Gaza Strip. In fact, Hamas, (laughs) who knows how much fraud was involved, won the Palestinian legislative elections in Gaza in 2006. So it has been firmly in control of that mess over there from the Arab side since 2006. In the meantime, you've heard lots of talk about the Israeli settlements. The Israeli settlements are the establishments of towns, villages, or kibbutzes, which are communal agricultural operations and communal defense operations in the occupied territories, in those areas like the West Bank, like the area around Gaza which, by the way, is only 4 to 5 miles wide and 25 miles long by our standards, but originally was supposed to be much larger. And the Israeli settlements kind of poke the bear of Arab discontent in a number of ways. Under all lies the land. And going back to the 1900s, World War I, and then the beginnings of Jewish serious immigration into the area, with the Balfour Declaration greatly accelerating with what was happening with Europe and Hitler, during World War II, the Jewish quest, particularly under the Zionists, has been total control of all land, either by taking it or by purchasing it. And of course, every piece of land that is lost enrages the Arabs more. You know, if you look at all struggles over history, they are always, as I've told you, about economics. And part of economics is the control of territory and its resources. And the same on a much smaller land area scale is what's been happening in the Mideast since, well since the Ottoman Empire, actually. That means generations upon generations of both Jews and Arabs know nothing except the struggle against each other for the control of territory. And, of course, the wide range of differences of opinions when it comes to that emotionally supercharged issue of religion. It is a deadly combination, which is absolutely bound to lead to conflict, war, death, and destruction. Currently... May of 2017, the leaders of Hamas presented a new charter that proposed the formation of a Palestinian state using the 1967, all the way back five wars ago, as the defined borders with Jerusalem as its capital. And as part of the plan, Israel would still not be recognized as a state. So obviously, the Israeli government rejected the plan. In May 2018, you remember that Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Think about the history we've talked about here. Think about this emotionally charged epicenter of three religions, both in area and in the city of Jerusalem itself. Palestinians responded with widespread protests at the Gaza-Israeli border, and Israeli forces responded. Dozens of protesters were killed. The seeds for what happened October 7th, with Hamas's, quote-unquote, surprise, invasion of Israel was sown at that time. And now for the Rest of the story, guess who financed the, quote-unquote, according to to the Arab nations, the Zionist immigrations, the Zionist industrialization, the Zionist improvement, and the Zionist purchase of lands leading up to the Balfour Declaration? Well, here we are again. Wow, everything circles back to the current WEF and the elites, does it not? Does the name Rothschild ring a bell? That's right. That's who financed the whole shebang leading up, basically, to the 1948 creation of the State of Israel, along with lots of money from lots of other places, including the American Jewish community. And as the second part of our rest of the story, guess who founded and funded Hamas? And think about their activities. I've brought you this story, their beehive plan, their 1993 white Paper of how to subvert the United States government and Christianity and American democracy and the Constitution. The Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood was basically the founding force and the funder, and still is, by the way, of Hamas. Now, that role has been largely taken over by Iran, with whom the Muslim Brotherhood has other close ties. And unfortunately, the Muslim Brotherhood was never throttled back during the days of Barry Obama, and Obama's third term, now the days of President Cadaver. That's my series of the last four weeks. Do you see how all these things tie in, how all the bits and pieces from long ago fall into place, are accentuated and disguised by people who have motives that are other than American motives? Next week, we'll look at this from the Israeli standpoint. So let's begin our special kind of mini-series, if you will, which is going to stretch over the next five or six weeks on things you can do and think about for your personal financial preparedness and that of your family and very importantly for your country folks you do no good to the United States the savings of freedom and the savings of the Constitution if you have to rely on the government for food if you have to Wait on handouts, which may or may not be dispersed by bureaucrats based on whether they like or don't like you or like your political views. Just like in physical preparedness, financial preparedness has to do with being self-sufficient as much as possible. And I want to tell you right up front, I'm not an expert in any of these matters other than the real estate side and the land side. And I will share my expertise with you when we get to that the week after next. We're going to go over the precious metals Today. We're going to go over cryptocurrencies, which I know very little bit about, but like all the rest of these things, I've researched extensively to bring you the facts. We're going to go over land. We're going to go over residential real estate. We're going to go over financial preparedness in a locational sense. Believe it or not, where you live or where you choose to live will have a dramatic effect on your personal finances. We're going to go over financial preparedness from a tax standpoint. The government only has one source of revenue, folks, or actually two, both of which flow to you, your property and your wallet, and desperate governments do desperate things. And in the conclusion of this little series, I'm going to tell you about some other things you can do which are kind of off the beaten track for financial preparedness. Let me tell you right up front that I'm not giving you any referrals other than one that I've researched, Harvard Gold. I'm not giving you any advice whatsoever. I'm not a financial planner. I'm not an economist. I'm a hayseed in Wyoming. I'm speaking to you from common sense terms based on research and based on what's going on in the world, in the financial markets, and here in the United States, both economically and, shall we say, government overreach-wise. Listen, I could beat the drum for half an hour on all the things which are wrong or going wrong or about to go wrong. You're familiar with them. I've brought many of them to you in detail in previous shows. The History of Money, The History of Inflation, The History of Civilizations, We've talked about the BRICS countries, the alternative currency being put together by them based on commodities, particularly, it seems, precious metals. We've talked to you about the United States debt, $33 trillion and ticking away at tens of billions of dollars a year. And debt service on that debt, which is now over $1 trillion a year, which is projected to be more than half the entire federal budget within a year or two unless stemmed. In the end, think about this, what retains value is most scarce, right? What there's least of is worth most. What is real is worth most, not abstract, something that you can touch and feel and hold and possess. And there are some assets out there, today we're talking about precious metals, that are just that. They're scarce, they're undersupplied, they are in use as money, and they are in use for industrial purposes. And in the case of gold and silver, have retained their relative values and have been looked at as a store of value, as real money, for thousands of years. Not hundreds of years, thousands of years. There's a reason that all the central banks of the world are buying thousands upon thousands of tons of gold to stick in their vaults. A trend which began in earnest in 2012, 13, and 14, following the Great Recession, and which has picked up steam since America has mismanaged the dollar, its budget, its deficits, and its leverage using the dollar as a reserve currency. So having that as foundation, whether or not you are familiar with them, whether or not you happen to dabble in the gold and silver market, or you're a big investor in it, gold and silver is one of the five or six scarce, tangible items that you can possess that may stand you in good stead in terms of maintaining the value of what you have financially in times of great inflation and collapse. Let me tell you a little bit about Weimar, Germany. We've talked about it, but I'm not sure you really know the details. This week, actually last week, happened to mark the 100-year anniversary of the end of the Weimar inflation in pre-Nazi Germany, back in the 1930s. And by the way, I'm using them as an example, but... Current inflation in Argentina is 143%. It's over 80% in Turkey. It's in double digits, sometimes 50, 60, 70% in a number of countries around the world, and always for the same reasons. Paper money has always, there is no exception, been hyperinflated. It started, in fact, with the first inventors of paper money. Go back to my history of money on the right side, radio.com. in the Song Dynasty a thousand years ago. That was the first government that realized they could cheaply mass-produce paper money. I brought you the story about the Romans in the history of inflation. In 64 to 68 BC, all their coins were gold and silver, and the coins consisted of, give or take, 95 to 100% gold and silver. By 268 BC, under the reign of Claudius II, the Roman emperor, The gold and silver content in Roman coins was under 5% precious metal. The rest was whatever, copper, you name it. So that you know, the gold-backed mark had been the official money of Germany ever since its unification in 1871. Prior to that, it was Prussia. When World War I started in 1914, the German government took the mark off gold as its foundation so that they could run enormous deficits for the war, i.e. print more money to fund the war machine. Total public debt went from 5 billion marks in 1914 to 105 billion marks in 1918. By the way, as I'm talking about this, think about America today and what's going on, because you will see startling parallels. The German central bank, the Reichsbank, drove up The amount of money in the system, the money supply, from 6 billion marks to 33 billion marks in just four years. They had a 115% inflation rate over that period, and the mark dropped sixfold against the U.S. dollar, which, by the way, at that time was still gold-backed. That's about 20% a year, but folks, that's only where it started. Because the war had wiped out, oh, half of Germany's industrial production, think about ours that had been shipped overseas, folks. And the Allies were making Germany pay 132 billion marks in reparations, which, by the way, if you scale it to our modern money in the U.S., that would be the U.S. owing $90 in reparations on top of our national debt and owing that money to other countries. But, you know, even with all those problems, does this sound familiar? The German government didn't stop spending because they were socialists. They tried to raise taxes, but, you know, that didn't go over too well. And there's only so much that people can pay and not keel over from starvation or live without a roof. France and Belgium actually seized Germany's main industrial region, the Ruhr, R-U-H-R, to have collateral for the debts they felt they were owed through the reparation process. Starting in May 1923, The Germans struck back. The the Reichsbank began printing on an epic scale, you know, kind of like the Federal Reserve over the last, oh, five to 15 years, folks. The amount of physical currency in circulation doubled in a single month, and the, the Reichsbank kept printing more and more and more. Within three months, the money supply grew 80 fold, that's 80x, from 8 billion in May to 670 billion in August. Three months later, now listen to this, it hit 400 quintillion marks. That's uh, 400 billion billion. At that point, a loaf of bread cost 200 billion marks. A dollar, a United States dollar, was worth 4.2 trillion marks. I'm not making this up. Unemployment rose to 30%. The middle class was, obviously, demolished. Gangs of folks from the cities invaded small towns beating up farmers, killing livestock out of spite, and stealing food. There's a book, and this is posted for you on the website, called When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson. I suggest you read it if you were interested in this stuff. And, by the way, you should be. Here's the lesson. When a central bank becomes, and I quote, a tool to fund the government, hyperinflation becomes a permanent threat, unquote. What do you think is going on in the United States, folks? Or the Western world? Or, in fact, countries outside the Western world? So listen, gold and silver, and there's platinum, and there's palladium, and there's other metals too, and copper. Some folks uh, I read or read about are investing in copper. But these commodities are a key ingredient, the precious metals being a key ingredient of the commodity sector. And the nice thing about them is you can take physical possession. There's lots of online sites, some not so good, some very good. I recommend Harvard Gold. I've done the research on these guys. They will spend the time with you so that you understand what's going on. Everybody else, even though some of them are very nice, they aren't going to spend the time, nor do they have the knowledge, to explain why this or that might be better for you and what the overall effect on your portfolio, your life, your savings, your safety might be if you get into the metals market. We're running several spots for them In this show, you heard it during the commercial breaks, so I'm not going to repeat all their information here. Also on the website, on therightsideradio.com, we have their banners, and you can click on that and get their phone number. You're welcome to call them. They will spend time talking to you on the phone, talking you through this, helping you understand. And I negotiated a $250 discount on your first order with them, so you can talk to them about that. And they have... Other things going on, certain types of price match guarantees, etc. That's really not the point of this. I'm not trying to plug anybody. I'm trying to get you to think about why one of the things you can do to protect yourself, to be prepared financially, is precious metals. And again, I don't profess to be an expert. It's not something I dabble in. But I will tell you that in my research, there's a spot price, and there's spot prices on futures contracts out into the future. They may be high or low, but there's a spot price literally calculated by the second or the minute, depending upon the exchange, London, Shanghai, New York, and generally metals dealers sell precious metals to you at a premium, it's called, a markup over the spot price. These premiums can vary widely, so make sure you inquire, because they will add up if you are beginning to collect some of these precious metals. And there's all sorts of different types of precious metals, right? You have gold and you have gold currency. It could be US currency, it could be European currency, it could be, they call it the Krugerrand over there in South Africa, the Corona in Austria. And then you can buy what's called rounds, which are round pieces of gold designed to look like a gold dollar or gold piece of currency in a foreign land. And then you have bars of gold. Obviously, if you were uh, George Soros and that ilk, you're buying, you know, 100 ounce bars or 1,000 ounce bars, whatever they're buying. For us little people, it's, it would seem to make sense that you can buy, you know, a tenth of an ounce bar, a quarter of an ounce bar, a one ounce bar, a five ounce bar, 10 ounce bar, a kilo, which is about 32 ounces bar, etc. Generally, keep this in mind the more you buy or the larger the quantity, if you're talking about smaller denominations, let's say 10 one-ounce bars rather than one ounce, one one-ounce bar, or you're buying a 10-ounce bar, the larger the quantity, the less the premium. In other words, the more you save when you purchase. Make sure you check this out, whatever your source for this stuff happens to be and in your research. The same is true for silver. It's kind of interesting that silver right now is like 84 to 87 to one, that's its gold to silver ratio, one of the highest it's ever been. That means one ounce of gold is worth, give or take, I'll round numbers, 85 ounces of silver. The historical average over hundreds, if not thousands of years, has been 16 to one. You can do the math yourself and you can do the research on what's going on with supply and demand in the gold markets, the silver markets, the mining markets, and you should. This could be a sizable investment for you. It could be the rise and fall, or should I say the rise or fall, of your financial future. And there's other considerations. By the way, if you have retirement accounts, uh, many of these outfits, Harvard Gold has a whole program on it, many of these outfits, however, can do it so it's in an IRA. You can put it in your retirement account rather than owning a paper asset like a stock that's subject to uh, what kind of coffee Jamie Diamond at J.P. Morgan Trust had on a Monday morning. I have never been a stock fan at all. Even though I know lots of people have made lots of money in the stock market. Because stocks aren't tangible, right? Stocks aren't real. You can't grow food on a piece of stock. You can't store a piece of stock. You can't take that stock out and dust it off when the SHTF and go down to the local store and put it on a scale and get some kind of products and services for it. So we have a number of articles under rat tat under family safety and on that preparedness page I told you about at the front of the show. Just click on that link and we'll be adding to it. And a lot of those articles have links in them which will bring you to more resources. It's up to you to do your research. You have to decide if you want to do precious metals or you want to do, and we'll talk about it next next week, and I know even less about cryptos, to be honest with you, other than the extensive research I've done for you, than I do about precious metals, or whether you want land, or whether you want some kind of combination. But in my mind, what you don't want is paper. Paper assets. That paper could be a dollar bill or that paper could be a stock certificate. This is just my opinion. You do whatever you and your financial advisor think is wise and prudent based on your own due diligence and your own research. I'm just here to give you some things to think about. And there's lots of people out there, YouTube and whatever, where you can learn about this. You can get a pretty good feel for precious metals and whether you want to be in them and how you want to be in them and how you want to store them pretty quickly if you invest just a little bit of time which is a very good investment right now in doing a little bit of research over the course of a week spread it out for an hour or two a day whoops we're out of time no rat-a-tat-tat but i'll make it up to you next week because there's some stuff that's important that you really need to hear this is reed lance rosenthal on the right side radio remember look in the mirror repeat after me and repeat it with conviction i will muster i will stand i will not comply i will never give in I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side.